welcome to uh, back to Rounding the Earth. Uh, we're kind of off schedule uh, this week, and that's because I wanted to uh, be able to uh, bring in uh, more guests uh, recently than than we had uh, weeks to to schedule them all. Uh, and today joining us is uh, Sasha Latipova, um, who who was uh, recommended to me very highly by um, by multiple people and uh, has a, a pretty wide range of um, experiences and and reading. Uh, in topics related to the pandemic, but I'm going to let her introduce herself and explain that. Uh -huh. Hi, Sasha, how are you? Hi, Matthew. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so why don't you um, tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how it is that your research has, has led to a focus on uh, manufacturing of these, uh, I don't know if we want to call them vaccines, these injectable products, and what it has to do with the DOD. Well, let's start with an introduction. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, well, my background is I spent uh, about 25 years in pharmaceutical research and development, um, so pretty much my entire career. I uh, worked in various roles at the beginning. Uh, well, I, I graduated uh, with the Master's of Business Administration from Dartmouth, uh, Talk Business School, and then I started working. I even previously worked in pharma, but I started working in pharmaceutical industry in various capacities as a management consultant, uh, econometrics consultant um, in litigation support, uh, and then eventually I transitioned to working in R&D directly, and ultimately I uh, owned and managed uh, my own companies, um, contract research organizations. We were contractors for a large number of farmers. I worked with over 60 pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer. Pfizer was my investor twice. Um, we had the R&D partnership and we worked on tools for drug development. So, pick, you know, pickaxes and shovels, um, but more like uh, software tools and uh, data analysis tools to improve the assessments uh, in clinical trials. Um, the last one I was working on for several years was uh, improvement of cardiovascular safety testing in, in human trials. And I also interacted with FDA quite a bit on that topic. Uh, they used to have at the time uh, what was called Cardiovascular Safety Research Consortium. Um, and so that, that, that was a big topic of discussion in the industry. And we were able to develop new, better methodologies, more precise uh, methodologies to assess risks for cardiovascular safety. So that, that's my background. And, I, and as part of running a business in a regulated industry, you have to know about the regulations. Um, you know, you can't just hire an expert. You have to know yourself. <laughs> you know, so not that I am, you know, deeply an expert in this, but I know where to look for certain documents and how to figure out, you know, what applies and what doesn't apply. So that's that's how I started uh, looking into this issue. So you have a very organic uh, relationship with the pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. uh, from your own work. Um, one of the things that, that frustrates me to, to hear about is yeah, how much time and effort it takes to even know the regulatory environment, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it seems like if the regulatory environment is complex enough that it takes uh, someone like you who, who's dedicated uh, to a multidisciplinary career to mm -hmm. eventually, you know, go through an understanding of, of so much of it. Uh, that means that, that the average human being who just doesn't have time after their job and taking care of their kids has basically no chance to understand it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. And I, frankly, I never examined, you know, the, this corner or very large corner now uh, of the pharma world as vaccines. Um, I assumed that they were regulated in the same way and I was mistaken. 
Um, actually, anything goes for these for these things. Uh, no regulations apply. So that that was my big finding too. And you know, being an expert in the industry and working there, I didn't know, and many of my colleagues didn't know. And now we know, and and we're you know we're very angry about this. That's interesting. What do you mean when you say? regulations don't apply. I mean, that. Um, what regulations would you ordinarily see with other pharmaceutical projects, uh, products mm-hmm. that you don't see with vaccines? Well, with vaccines specifically, they uh, don't even go, you know, what I found in Pfizer and, and Moderna's documents was just, it was just atrocious, uh, but they, they don't even go by FDA regulations, turns out. Uh, they defer, all defer to WHO from 2005, uh, regulations from WHO from 2005. Remember, in the United States, WHO is not a regulator. They do not regulate interstate commerce of pharmaceutical products. Therefore, those recommendations are irrelevant to us. Yet, both of these companies refer to WHO from 2005 when these products were deemed gene therapies, not vaccines, and they go by those very, very light, uh, very uh, non-curious uh, investigations that WHO recommends with respect to the vaccines. And FDA, strangely, defers to them on that matter. That's so they, they give up their power. Yeah, the, there's something about the regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. When you are the first in the space, uh, you are really the unregulated player. Um, this happened uh, with Amazon, and I, I don't mean to blame all of the world's ills on Amazon's. I have I have some problems with Amazon, but uh, one of the the ways in which Amazon succeeded was they were they were in the space at a time at which there was not taxation on internet purchases, and so they were able to absorb a huge customer base that was moving to shopping online by by giving them a, a deduction essentially of sales tax. And that might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%. And that's a tremendous automatic savings for, for consumers. And, but then, uh, but Congress came in later, years later and said, you know, we're going to start taxing this now, but they'd already built their consumer base. Meaning um, that first mover advantage was not just a first mover advantage. It also came with uh, a moat that is, that becomes built by regulations later on. So now, you know, what you're saying is you have this new class of pharmaceutical products uh, that are gene therapy products, and therefore they are not subject to the same regulation as other pharmaceutical products. And so they get away with just sort of pointing to some, you know, some old documents and and saying, well, uh, you know, we're, we're self-regulating on this level, but basically that means there is no external regulatory body. Is Do I have that about right? Uh, well, uh, on the face of it, yes, but um, understanding how this, this evolves and reading the regulatory guidance, there has been actually very extensive. So, so they're, they're both extremely novel because they've never been approved, but they're also very well understood because there was about 20 years of attempts to put them on the market that all failed. So when that happens, you have accumulated a huge amount of regulatory knowledge that is very, very bad because now we have all these problems documented in various stages of development that didn't progress anywhere, especially in animals and in some early human studies, which I was aware of very early on around 2008, one of these gene therapies killed, uh, you know, they, they did the first in human study in eight healthy men 
and killed two of them immediately. And the rest of them were severely injured. I don't know if they survived. Uh, and that particular study was a huge scandal in the industry. It was done in the United Kingdom by Parexcel, uh, CRO, and it is actually cited in regulatory guidance for gene therapies. So after 20 years of accumulating these really bad results, completely known to the FDA, what happens is they, you know, pharma companies in cahoots with FDA, FDA actually enabled them to do this, recategorize this whole thing into vaccines. And then they say, well, none of this applies. This is bad history now. It doesn't apply to us. We're just going to go by this random piece of paper from WHO that says, oh, you know, vaccines are totally fine and you don't need this and you don't need that. And um, and we're just going to do, do this program. And FDA says, OK, sounds good to me. So uh, to me, that looks like deep collusion and fraud driven by the FDA. It's not even the big bad, bad pharma. And, and then I actually I confirmed that later. Um, but uh, it's the fraud driven by the FDA, by the U.S. government. So uh, out of curiosity, have you have you watched the uh, ACIP meetings uh, on? You know, uh, no, I, yeah, I don't I don't watch them in detail. I sometimes get clips from them. But I mean, I just I just know that they're going to say, I mean, the same nonsense that they've been saying all along. And so I, I don't find any, it interesting. Part of the reason I asked is um, I, I was over um, at my friend David Weissman's home uh, a few months ago, maybe it was on March. Uh, I don't know if you know, Dr. Weissman. Yes, I do. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he, he said, you know, I, I can't, I stumbled upon something recently that there are these ACIP meetings, not just for vaccines, but there are separate meetings for gene therapy products. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that almost nobody that I've talked to in the space has, has mentioned this or, or watches these meetings, but he said uh, he watched a few and that they kind of sort of dance around the fact that what they're actually talking about are products that are being pushed into the vaccine meetings. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and you know, that, that's sort of amusing on its own. I, I sort of wonder what goes on in those meetings and what we would learn from, from watching those, but um, you know, m moving on. So, Okay, we have this this regulatory issue, and uh, and and we we don't even really actually know what is in these products, right? That's we have right. Yeah. redacted ingredients. Um, you know, almost half the ingredients <laughs> are are redacted. We don't know what they are. Um, you know, some of them may be you know relatively inert biologically, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, um, for all we know, we could be poisoned, right? Yes, um, absolutely. And, and, and for all we know, um, you know, we could be part of some experiment where only uh, only a few people get to have knowledge of what those experiments are, meaning there is a separation of the regulation class and the regulator class and the regulated class of mm -hmm. humans, mm -hmm. right? This is sort of a speciation of knowledge of what is going into everyone's body. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it seems like a very, very dark, um, you know, turn of governance. Um, so what does this have to do with the Department of Defense? Because mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it seems like you, you've been, um, you know, talking about this relationship, but I, I want you to go into those details. Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely correct. Nobody knows what's in these products. I just want to emphasize that. Um, and I do have unredacted labels, and I, I think they later became available by FOIA as well. Uh, and that doesn't il illuminate the issue 
either because uh, what I also found, and there's very clear confirmation uh, from regulatory documents from all sorts of, we, we can prove it in multiple ways. Um, these products are not manufactured to what's called uh, current good manufacturing practices. You know, current good manufacturing practices, it's a, it's a very, very extensive set of law in the US and similar laws exist everywhere in the world, uh, which regulate uh, consistency of the product being manufactured, uh, especially medicines, but also food and beverage. So, you know, imagine if you buy a soda today and it's fine, you buy a soda next day, it has cyanide. Um, a contamination. Or next day you buy it, it has metals contamination. Next day, you buy. so that's illegal in the United States, especially. In, and FDA regulates the com the component of interstate commerce, where if you're selling soda across different states, that's their regulatory power. They can stop it. They can recall it if they find these kinds of issues. And every manufacturer that's subject to these regulations has the systems to monitor it and to trace it back and and resolve those issues quickly because they have liability. Now, in the case of these products, there's zero liability, zero. So there's absolutely no incentive for a manufacturer to trace the problem. Uh, and uh, also what I later find, and I, I was shocked and many of my colleagues were shocked by this scenario. Uh, why are they not being compliant at all? And nobody can, uh, and nobody stops it. There's no, because we have several layers like, FDA has drug enforcement arm. FBI has drug enforcement arm. Uh, at the state level, they have drug enforcement. At the local level, there is drug enforcement. Each manufacturer has drug enforcement. Majority of recalls of products in the US are done voluntarily by manufacturers because everyone has these systems. Uh, and so I was like, well, why is nobody doing anything? And so my colleagues were, you know, it should be very easy to prosecute. This is obvious, obvious violation. Um, and then I later found that, uh, well, it turns out these are not medicines at all. Legally, they're not. Uh, so what happened, um, and, and, and that, that means that FDA... So what, what does that mean? Legally, they're, they're not medicines. It's a separate legal class uh, of things. And yeah, so, so FDA doesn't have any authority over these products, by the way, uh, because they're not pharmaceuticals. Uh, what these are, these How are is that determined, like, is there uh, some definition with, uh, with criteria? Is there some process where someone adjudicates that classification? Uh, yes and no. So there is a classification, but there's no criteria and nobody adjudicates except uh, health and human services secretary in his sole, sole discretion. So one person decides for all of us, 300 million of us. And the way this happens is there are three key pieces of law in the US that people are not aware of and should be. Uh, and uh, I learned this from uh, Catherine Watt, who writes a Bailiwick News Substack. And um, we've, we've since been collaborating uh, and working together because it, this is kind of fits together my, my industry and manufacturing expertise with her legal expertise. So she put together a, essentially an encyclopedia of law on this matter, and she traced it back all the way to early 1900s. And if you're so curious, you can even trace it back to the Civil War. Uh, so this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, the the um, say usurpation of power by the executive branch in the United States. So we don't have functioning uh, constitutional republic anymore and haven't had for a long time. Uh, and uh, the power has been taken over by the executive branch, and they've just, they've they've built over time this. Well, she calls it legal cage, and I, I completely agree. So the legal cage, um, the most recent implementation of it, uh, consists of three three areas 
of law. Uh, first is the emergency use authorization, which was it's a it's a law that was put in place in 1997, uh, and initially, as all these things go, was very narrowly defined and was uh, sold as oh you know it's very limited for desperate things and for like you know terminal cancer and they just want to use uh, some some novel thing and it's maybe dangerous but you know it's basically like that it was told to, to the public that it's it's a good thing that fda can suspend regulations and put something and allow to a use of unapproved product for uh for certain populations when especially when there is no other option no other treatment options key criteria so that piece at least has some criteria to it uh, the second one is um very few people are aware of it, but I suggest everyone read up on it very quickly because it's used hugely in the United States. It's called Other Transaction Authority. So Other Transaction Authority, or OTA, is a way for the U.S. government to contract with private manufacturers who are subject to regulations and suspend all those regulations in those contracts. And it's a it's a catch-all phrase. It's a catch-all category. This other, okay. And so it just means that it's not contract, not procurement, not um, research grant, not otherwise regulated uh, government contracting and accountable. So uh, this was initially uh, started for only for NASA in 1960s. And today, 11 government agencies use it, and DOD particularly loves it because they can hide all sorts of things in this other category. Uh, and also NIH and BARDA and, and uh, you know, HHS, they all love this category. Um, this category also allows them to uh, shield private businesses from uh, government rights to taxpayer-funded IP. So they can get taxpayer funded money for research and development, but not be uh, forced to disclose or share IP with the US government. Um, and also, but, but more curiously, this allows different branches of the government to hide IP from each other. Uh, and that's another very useful tool. Um, so, uh, and the disclosure. Hide, hide IP. I mean, intellectual property is, is where someone has a, a government ordained right over um, you know monopoly power to you know manufacture or make use of some technology, mm -hmm. um, do you mean that they hide the knowledge of the technology entirely? Yes, like with this in particular with these with these injections, I have very strong reason to believe FDA does not know, and actually they they confirm themselves. FDA does not know what is in these things. Pfizer and Moderna also don't know entirely what's in these things. Uh, wow, so wait, how how do we know that? Oh, that's evident from their documents. Uh, they can't characterize them. Um, and uh, also have some insiders that came forward and confirmed those parts, especially with respect to the full uh, full, full disclosure on what goes into the lipid nanoparticle and how it's made. Uh, and uh, also full characterization of the mRNA and spike protein produced in, in human cells. So which are two main components. Yeah. Of that, right? I, I, I'm going to jump in and share this real mm -hmm. quick. Um, I, I know someone who works for one of the companies that manufactures the lipid nanoparticles. And uh, what he told me was uh, in October of 2019, they had uh, like their their sort of top international. I, I, I can't remember the position, but, he, you know, he comes in once a year and, and um, you know, talks with the people in, in uh, the location. I'm not going to say where the location is uh, about, you know, 
changes moving forward, what's going on. And in October of 2019, he came in and said, okay, we're going to um, uh, GMP for this specific type of nanoparticle. And it winds up being the nanoparticle that is made for the Moderna vaccines. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very interesting to find out that that, that, you know, that was brought into the company in October of 2019. And the decision must have been made even earlier than that. Oh, yes, absolutely. The decision, this so decisions to the do this. Yeah, yeah I, I just want to uh, yeah, add one more thing. What this means is that we absolutely know 100% mm -hmm. that the process of creating these vaccines, which involves so many steps, began prior to when we were told mm -hmm. there was a viral outbreak. Mm -hmm. And and this is something you know every, everybody should absorb that and think about what that means. Well, it's absolutely it was pre-planned and premeditated. And in fact, it's not possible if anybody understands manufacturing, especially complex manufacturing, to pull off what they want us to believe that they did. This like operation warp speed, this amazing you know feat and of heroic act by these companies to to start making these things in in large volumes. So uh, so that's that's total BS. And I know I have contracts, uh, at least uh, Pfizer and BioNTech partnering for this technology and with Fosun Pharmaceuticals, which is a CCP controlled Chinese company um, around this technology. It's a three party deal. Everyone thinks it's two party like Pfizer and BioNTech, but no, it's Pfizer, BioNTech and Fosun uh, sharing this and that they partnered in 2000, uh, 2018. And, and then I also have a bunch of DOD contracts with a whole lot of suppliers that DOD had to establish for a long time, since 2012 at least, to be able to pull this off. Uh, you know, so the, the manufacturing base that they built. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, so, so of course it is premeditated. Of course it is preplanned. You know, it, you, you, have to be, you have to be so naive to believe otherwise. Uh, by the um, way, uh, in, in all of your, your mm -hmm. research into things that appear to be, you know, planning prior to when we should think there would have been any planning, mm -hmm. uh, according to the narrative, um, what is the, what is the oldest date? You just mentioned 2012, but mm -hmm. let's say, let's say that, uh, you know, things that would have had to have happened specific for this project. What's the oldest date that you could point to? Well, the contracts that I have seen, yes, 2012. That's when that's when the DoD uh, established a contract for. And at that time, they called all of this pan influenza vaccine, and I was like, well, it's a strange name. What's pan influenza vaccine? Uh, and uh, and but it was specifically, you know, to produce these biological substances. So so what you you have to understand, this manufacturing is extremely complex. It's just as complex as as to build a brand new Boeing design test everything, establish the supply chain, establish all the testing parameters. You know, do you know how long that takes? 12 years or so, right? For And that's for something completely well understood, engineered, not some biochemistry thing. Um, and actually building things that you can visualize, you know, all of the mechanical stuff, like you can see what you've, you've, you made. With these things, you made something. Do you know that there's mRNA in there? No, you have to have a very specialized assay and, and very specialized and very careful lab process to validate that what you made is actually what you, you thought you, you, you were gonna make. Um, so this is extremely complex. Um, another thing is, you know, people easier and understand cars much easier. If you go to Ford Motor Company today and you say, I, here's $10 billion and I need a million new cars in six months. Do you think Ford is gonna make it? No. Ford is gonna say it's not possible because I don't have the raw materials. 
I don't have the extra manufacturing lines. I don't have extra employees. I haven't trained anyone. I haven't established uh, SOPs. I haven't established quality system. I don't have, uh, you know, chips for them. Uh, and I don't have parking space. Okay. So that's not possible to do. So what they're saying, oh, we just printed money, gave it to Pfizer. And Pfizer all of a sudden expanded their this very, very complicated manufacturing capacity. It consists hundreds of steps uh, and requires hundreds of suppliers. And they just did it in six months because, you know, we're so brilliant. So that's not possible. You know, so I, I'm sorry, but like you have to be so naive to think that this was actually what happened. That's not what happened because DOD has established, you know, I, I have contracts with Emergent Biosolutions going back to 2012 when they started building up this capacity specifically. And Emergent Biosolutions is very shady, very DOD, very intelligence linked uh, supplier that constantly violated CGMP forever uh, and, and has exclusive rights for to manufacture anthrax vaccine, which is horrible and has some same issues uh, uh, for the United States government. And so they, they went to their, oh, and by the way, uh, Robert Kudlick, who was assistant secretary for Pand pandemic preparedness and response is their lobbyist. Um, so of course they went to emergent biosolutions and established this contract for, for, for this manufacturing capacity. And then there are a whole bunch of others. Um, and there are, you know, about 400 contracts or so have been, uh, released through FOIAs and, um, uh, free and uh, SEC disclosures um, and available online, although they're redacted partially uh, for what's what's been put together as COVID um, countermeasures response. So uh, legally, a class where these things belong is countermeasures. And they're not pharmaceuticals, it's countermeasures. They, sometimes they call them medical countermeasures, still doesn't make them pharmaceutical products. It's countermeasures. It's a very specific class of things in U.S. law. Uh, and um, specifically, there's a piece of U.S. law that says that under public health emergency, which HHS declares whenever they feel like it, there are no criteria, uh, HHS secretary, him or herself, can decide that these products should be deployed on every single man, woman, child in the United States, regardless of their circumstances or age or, or health conditions, if he or she, the HHS secretary, thinks that they may be effective. They don't have to be safe and effective. They just need to be maybe effective because he thinks so. There are no other criteria, nothing applies. And there's no stopping criteria either. He never has to reconsider this decision regardless of what amount of data has become available since, he still doesn't have to, he, and, and him, Javier Becerra, has been pretending that he's never seen this data and that's why none of this stops. And also that, that explains why public health emergency keeps getting extended beyond any sort of you know, uh, reasonable emergency that's happening. There's no emergency, but they keep extending it. Why? Because this, they need it, because then he's the dictator who decides that these should be deployed. I was looking at uh, uh, military data um, a, a lot this year, but uh, looking at it again recently. Um, and one of the interesting things about the, the data is that you can see that 2020 was the uh, year of the lowest rate of injury and illness in modern military era, mm -hmm. period. Um, and, and the idea that, I mean, 
maybe the military is a little bit different than the rest of the population, but it's probably not so different, at least than the 20 to 40 year old age group, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's clearly not a reason for some you know, state of emergency, uh, at least for a large class of U.S. citizens, regardless of what, um, you know, might have been at play. Uh, you know, whether it's an, a virus or an infectious clone or whatever the difference might be. Um, so it, 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 it is interesting to see that, you know, this much engineering almost necessarily goes through the DOD when it comes to technology at this level. Um, technology really is, it, it, it's a matter of power. And so um, we should probably begin to think more naturally about the DOD, um, you know, being able to take control over a certain amount of all new technology, mm -hmm. uh, if that technology would represent an imbalance of power, right? I guess some technologies, you don't really have to worry about that, but it feels like the last 20 years of technology development have been uh, primarily in areas that you would think would be sort of, you know, society changing or at least control of it would uh, give an asymmetric advantage either between nation societies or just between people within a society, either one. Yeah, the, 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 they definitely took over the industry. They took over the pharmaceutical industry and I can tell you why. So um, they, the, 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 this creep of dual use technology has been expanding and expanding over time. So they, they, some, some technologies are declared dual use because they can be weaponized. Well, pretty much anything can be weaponized really. Um, and of course, yes, they, they want to get their hands on something new. Uh, in this case, I suspect, again, the, they have weaponized it intentionally. That's, that's my conclusion today, my opinion. Um, because as a medicine, it's use, useless. It, it will never work as a medicine. Uh, it, it only instructs your cells to destroy themselves. Uh, and even if you can deliver some sort of a... a helpful protein that maybe due, due to genetic problems somebody can't produce, you're going to have huge number of off-target effects and you will never be able to control it because that's how the human body works. Um, and so they've tried, that's why they've tried. And actually I think Robert Malone quoted once that um, Merck had rights for this technology for, I don't remember exactly, they spent about a billion dollars over 30 years and they couldn't make it work. So that, that definitively proves to you that you can't make it work as a medicine because a very, very large, very experienced pharmaceutical company spent tremendous amount of time and money trying to, and they were not able to. Um, and many, many others were also likewise failed. So what I suspect happened, they figured out that it's useless as a medicine, but wonderful as a weapon, which is, you know, usually happens, you know, poison. Uh, you sometimes can make it into a medicine, but... If it's a really good poison, it's good as poison. Um, so they figured this is great as poison. Uh, it has a lot of properties, um, such as uh, it has delayed effects. And so that, that makes it even better as a weapon. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're going to weaponize it. In fact, uh, it has been since 1997, this particular gene therapy as a weapon has been a class of biological weapons, specifically discussed in many, many U.S. Um, Army, Navy, intelligence reports, they're all available online. Um, and uh, there's even a, um, a textbook published by NIH in 2018 that has a whole chapter on these things as a bioweapon and explains exactly how they work as a bioweapon. 
uh, and uh, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, RNA fractures, unpredictably, just like a you know. So I call them uh, shrapnel uh, because just like shrapnel, it's unpredictable in the way the way it flies and breaks. And as a like, you can break, for example, a pane of glass. And you don't know how it's going to break. There's going to be some big pieces and somebody may be killed immediately in its vicinity. And there may be some small pieces and, you know, they may scratch somebody or not even hurt them. But you cannot, you cannot predict it. So that makes it a great weapon. Yeah. Uh, is the body making amino acids according to, you know, the programmatic recipes of these fragments? Does no, it, it doesn't. happen the same way or what, what happens with these no, fragments? No, it doesn't because, so it, it makes something. So it, it reacts to it, obviously. It, it freaks out. Um, so what happens is they, they deliver this completely unstable, already fractured, e e even if, the, you know, believe that mRNA is in 100% of these shots, it's not. And then I can, I can also demonstrate how, how it's not. But in some of them, there may be some mRNA. They deliver it in these lipid nanoparticles. It's not stable. It's a very large molecule, very large molecule, and it's by nature not stable. And when it gets, especially if it gets exposed to water, it breaks immediately. Um, and so that's why they need to contain it in the lipid. But lipids are also not stable. Pigulation problems, they can break, they can clump into, into bigger, bigger structures. Yeah, it's kind of held together by a sort of like soft magnetism, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, so they, and they that, have to charge relationship can charge, just be yeah. pushed off. Yeah, they have to give it the charge, both to keep them apart, uh, but that's not 100% works. Uh, and also to get them into the cells. And that's a big problem, you know, because the, because of the charge, they actually strip the charge off of red blood cells and they start clumping together. But, um, but the, yeah, so, so there are all these components, but essentially, you know, they're delivering some genetic material with a lot of impurities. It's already broken into pieces. We know that the, they have small shards of RNA. Uh, FDA tried to wave them off as, as theoretical problem, but it's not a theoretical problem because that specific thing is described as a bioweapon by all these reports, these, these little RNAs, the little RNAs that then can mess up whatever's going on in your cells at the moment, because you as a, as a, as a living organism, you're replenishing your cells all the time. Like you're, you're not a static thing. You're very dynamic. You, you can call any living thing is an event. It's not a thing. It's an event in time. And that event needs to continue. And your cells are remaking themselves all the time. And there's these genetic processes go all the time. And they're unique to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, they just throw the sand in the gears. And then depending where that gets distributed all over the body, and we know it does go all over the body, depending on what amount of what you got in those cells, that's how they're going to start destroying themselves. Because your, your immune system also recognizes it as foreign and starts attacking it. And it just it's just a matter of what we call in, in drugs, we call exposure, how much you got, what's individually toxic to you, in what locations of your body. That's how destruction is going to proceed. So I, I'm going to mention something for the audience because um, it, it probably sounds for uh, people who are not as familiar with the pharmaceutical industry or you know the, the military industrial complex or just don't want to have to think about these things. Um, uh, the relationship between the DOD and, and the pharmaceutical industry has been building for longer than people think. And I'm going to point to 
uh, we, we had uh, uh, head of the DOD, um, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. And Donald Rumsfeld was a board member of Gilead from very early on. And that's not the only relationship at that that top level. There have been a number of people, um, you know, one of our, I can't remember his name, but one of one of the Secretary of Defense's was from Boston and had, you know, relationships with Harvard. And, and of course, that's where, um, you know, Harvard, MIT, that, that, that sort of complex and all of the, the different companies in that vicinity uh, is where a lot of that work seems to, to take place. Uh, of course, it's, it, it's all over the place, but, but Boston's the center of it. Um, so the, these relationships have been building over the years. And then a, a second piece, and oddly, oddly, this is something that came out of the uh, the Snake Venom documentary fiasco, which was, um, yeah, it, there, there are a lot of interesting explorations. At, you know, even though that hypothesis, you know, was it probably should have been filtered by more good minds before <laughs> um, being thrust out of the public. But um, the interesting thing that I learned was that the pharmaceutical industry has all these databases of toxins. Mm-hmm that they've been building up for years. I mean, the, the snake venom toxins alone, there are tens of thousands of them. Yep. There's a database specifically for snake venom toxins. And, uh, and I began to understand a little bit better, you know, you can probably, um, you know, help me out here. Um, the, there's just a large field of study of, you know, what, what strings in the, the harpsichord of the human body get plucked when we put just a tiny little bit of this one in, tiny mm-hmm. little bit of this one in. And that's what a lot of pharmaceutical testing has been over the years is yeah. how to how to play the human body like a like a harp and and cause certain reactions and yeah. you know th- this is scary in a sense because it it leads one to understand and, and I mean we know that scientists were trying to do this even pre World War II in some countries probably the U S Japan Germany most notably uh, pro- probably throw England in there. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know um, the level to which that research might have been going on before World War II in the Soviet, in, in Russia or, you know, the Soviet Union. But um, certainly later on, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they, they joined that level of research. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we have this this enormous history that goes back decades long before we were born. Um, and, and we know that it connects to like already just to have this industry means that you are automatically testing for weapons all the time. Yeah, the, 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 absolutely. The, you know, the toxins, that's why I didn't discard the, the Venom uh, theory or that, that video uh, or you know, documentary that was made. I, you know, I never throw away ideas that sound odd. And by the way, that's not a very odd idea because you're right, uh, I, and I knew, and everybody knows it in the pharmaceutical industry, we study natural toxins all the time, both you know, animal produced plant, plants, everything. They're useful and they're they're some very early medicines are toxins based on toxins. And we still use uh so they're used both as uh drug substances, but also often they're used in as as tools for drug development to understand, you know, what the mechanism and to elucidate the mechanisms of, of various uh of various uh, events in human body. So they're extremely useful. Uh, they've been studied. There are thousands of them. They're categorized, you know, sequenced and understood. And uh, also, they're much more stable than, uh, extremely more stable than mRNA. So th- some of those things are so stable they survive boiling. They survive outside they, 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 because they're small peptides. Um, and so that 
to me sounded like a plausible theory that you could theoretically weaponize these lipid nanoparticles by just putting a whole bunch of peptides into them. And because, again, because the, 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 these products are not manufactured to good manufacturing practices, there's no absolutely no assurance that 30 micrograms of mRNA BNT162B2 is actually there because there's no test for it. There has never been one designed, never been one declared in any single manufacturing document. And I assure you, not a single regulatory agency has those uh, tests per vial. So you can put anything you want in them. You know, you can just put in anything, any kind of toxin you want into the lipid nanoparticle, including metals, including peptides, including all sorts of, all sorts of things. Uh, and I'm sure they're doing it because they they're testing you know whatever whatever sticks whatever flies, um, you know so so that's that's my personal you know interpretation of all of this. So it should should be looked into. I applaud you know whoever wanted to research this. I think this should be researched further. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. They could put anything that they want in there and be running the uh, you know the tests on their mm -hmm. own. Um, Uh, so uh, uh, another, I, I don't know if this is a topic you're familiar with. This is kind of a shot in the dark, but are you familiar with uh, gene drive technology? The, the CRISPR-Cas9, I mean, not very deeply. Uh, I My personal opinion on what I have read, uh, you know, there, you know, I should step back. There's a lot of, especially in the recent years, I've, I've realized there's a lot, a lot of fraudulent science produced, especially by Chinese scientists. Uh, but that, that's been like, you know, in, initially we all knew to be, you know, skeptical of Chinese publications. Now everyone should be skeptical of, of uh, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet because they published completely fraudulent studies, totally manufactured data. Total nonsense, too. Not even not even subtle, not difficult. Yeah, they, they make claims like we're going to vaccinate against malnutrition. Really? You know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, anyway, so so uh, there is a, a huge amount of fraud in science publications and also clickbait, uh, you know, in science publications. So what they have been advertising about this gene drive technology, I don't think it actually quite works the way they, they, they try to pretend that they have this. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, the, the, don't take this the wrong way, but the, the way to check whether this technology has worked in a functional way is to see if you have, uh, if we start having uh, a bunch of blue-eyed Chinese babies running around, then we know it worked. Uh, but until that happens, because, it, and, and again, I have nothing against, but that in China, that technology is being advertised for designer babies. And so I'm like, well, where are the designer babies then? Because uh, I don't see them. Uh, and uh, so I don't think it works for, uh, just with the same as these mRNA technologies. They don't work for what they're declaring them to be doing. They're saying, well, we're going to cure cancer. We're going to... Uh, precisely manipulate your DNA into some functional and better, you know, make you better, you know, make a super soldier, make a better vision, make, uh, you know, cure cancer and all those things, or make designer babies like in China. None of this has been happening because they don't have, they can't make it work precisely for the function that they want to implement and not do any other bad stuff. Right. My understanding is they, they can change the part of the genome that they want, 
but then there are unintended consequences down the line. They can't stop, um, you know, how the changes occur uh, at a certain. And point. the change so, will be eliminated from the from from the genome by multiple ways. So the, uh, the so the, so they they can theoretically make the change, but the change doesn't really work. It doesn't create an offspring that has precise change. So even even within yourself, you're going to change it, and you're gonna your genes mutate every day. By the way. So gene mutations is, is, you know, nonsense. So the genes will mutate and they will mutate out. So you will either eliminate it right away or it will damage you in some way that you can't reproduce anymore. Uh, or yeah, you we don't know, even know the degree to which we have a, like an unknown immune system. Right? We yeah. have all these different immune systems that handle different things. My wife mm -hmm. studies an immune system that relates to jumping genes specifically, mm -hmm. right? We don't even know what immune systems are part of the human body that we have not even described yet. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. something like this, you know, comes and, and because operating on the body, we, we are, we have to discover mm -hmm. if there is and what there is that, that protects the body on that level, you know? So, yeah. you know, we, yeah. you know, we, we don't have a public textbook for, you know, for what that is. So, you yeah. know, public, at least it's, it's absolutely, you know, mm -hmm. just completely new territory. I, I I'm going to throw this out just because it, my mind keeps going back to the last few years, right before the pandemic, there was a very creepy conversation. And I'm sure that you heard this. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's something about uh, the venture capitalist class that they walk around with mantras, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And here, here's an example. Um, the self-driving truck people walk around going, it's coming, <laughs> it's coming as if like, there's nothing that could stop or steer the process of self-driving trucks taking over the trucking industry. Um, there, there was something similar going on in, in the bioengineering industry. Um, you know, people walking around going, well, you know, China's gonna get ahead of us with CRISPR-Cas9 because we don't have the will to experiment on our own population. Mm -hmm. And I heard this, and you know, I'm, I'm not even in the biology. I mean, my wife's a biologist, but I didn't even hear this, like, you know, going to her conferences or anything. I, I was still just hear this just in, in common conversation amongst the intellectual class. You know, I'd be at a conference for cryptocurrency and, and, I, and I'd hear this conversation happen. It was almost as if there were people like intentionally seeding the air with this discussion. Like mm -hmm. we should care too much about it because it needs to happen in order for us to stay ahead of China specifically. Mm -hmm. um did did you hear this going on yeah, like, yeah. And, and i'm very familiar with venture capital capitalist uh you know circles because you know I, I i had many many invest in my companies and uh you know so I've, I've, i have friends who work in the industry and uh and uh, yes they have a tendency to hype things that have not worked and but they they you know they they say oh it's, it's a vision we just have a vision uh, but there's a little bit of a, you know, you have to have foundation. You have to have backup data to your vision. Otherwise, it's it's a hallucination, right? So, but so over more recent times, uh, with respect to self-driving vehicles, because they'll never work. Uh, and and I, I had arguments with actually my husband, who's like, no, no, they're going to make this technology work. And we're going to have the self-driving cars. I'm like, no, it's not going to happen. And lo and behold, they're all exiting that space now. Uh, because it's not going to work. Um, it's, it will work. Really? Interesting. Yeah, it, it will only work in a self-contained system. So if you can put it underground into only self-driving vehicles, just like the trains that go around the airport terminals, that implementation works. That's how you can do either either 
on rails above the ground, below the ground, where no chain system without the uh, the trillions of variables that involve being yes. around other, you know, you know, autonomous human beings operating vehicles or, or things that it has never seen before. Like you know, with, with Volvo, for example, had this algorithm that would work for uh, to detect moose and 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 uh, bear, uh, but failed with kangaroos. Okay, so <laughs> you know. Um, th th those those types of things. So, like the 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 the, the software can never, uh, you know, human mind can deal with things it has never seen before, and solve it quickly. The the software cannot do it. Uh, same same thing with these CRISPR Cas9. And yes, these guys go like they shifted over the past years. These these financiers. And by the way, the financial investor investor world has been likewise overtaken by the Department of Defense and military intelligence. And a lot of money is pretend to be venture funds while actually it's being funded by CIA. Um, so the the so that in the recent years, because that money started flooding into this industry and polluting it, it also shifted from what used to be uh, founded into in some scientific principles, founded in some data, because actually you know, when, when private people invest, they risk their money. When government invests, they don't because they can always print more. Right, so exactly. <laughs> it's all tied to the financial system. I, I think this is what UBI is about also. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, universal basic income is the idea of, of uh, if we as taxpayers revolt by not funding the system, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that this is them experimenting how far they can go simply mm -hmm. printing more money. Mm -hmm. Without even the need for taxation, um, at, at least partially, right? I, I think that there's sort of there's some balance where I think you know if you go beyond some point, it's going to break. But mm -hmm. uh, you know there there is a certain amount of you know control over the world that the banking system has, and the DoD and the bank system. I tell people this: um, you've got to view them as tied together because ultimately the currency is not a global reserve currency without the military to back that up. Yes. And the military doesn't have funding without the seniorage tax taxation mm -hmm. from creating that money. So they, they are hand in hand. We should we should view that. Um, and I, I've, I've personally noticed um, when I've gone around and, and you know met, you know, biotech uh, entrepreneurs and looked at where they were in the country. I mean, obviously, you've got places like Boston that mm -hmm. are just, you know, deep centers and that that's explainable by the universities that have been there for a very long time but um you know Huntsville Alabama mm -hmm. okay why is that a biotech hub you know well that's where NASA is and wherever it is you've got NASA you've got you know deep DOD relationships mm -hmm. and you know it makes sense for there to be just sort of a few hubs for those people who are you know pulling those funding strings to be able to you know, go to one location, sort of watch over that location and influence that location. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it, how, you know, give your perspective on how, how does the money pollute the environment? Like, you know, really, ultimately, there, there's sort of a strange cascade of things that have to happen for money to control an industry. So yeah. how, does it, how does it work, really? Well, it's very simple. Uh, and, and they have, uh, you know, as I said, they've polluted a whole bunch of industries now. But but more recently, because of all these COVID countermeasure uh, exercises, they have essentially taken, so the government and specifically DOD through BARDA and their contractors like Advanced Technologies International, uh, which is a defense uh, manager that manages all of their projects, uh, they... T 
took over the pharmaceutical industry. We actually, in practical terms, we don't have a private pharmaceutical industry anymore. Because um, so recently I've, I've, I've shown these slides. These are, these are from BARDA. These are not my slides. They're, they're BARDA themselves. They're reporting on this. Um, they said that they spent $47.5 billion uh, in R&D funding for specifically for COVID countermeasures, of which uh, $33 billion went to the vaccines. And um, for reference, the entire U.S. pharmaceutical industry spends about $100 billion on R&D. So you have one buyer, specifically Department of Defense through BARDA, uh, buying research and development, giving them money that they can print anytime. So there's no risk attached to these money. So here we have single buyer spending 50% of the spend with free money. And there we have another 50% of private investors that have to get the money somewhere, risk the money and make you know, better investments that way. So who do you think is going to win in this competition? I give it a year or two, it's gonna be entirely government controlled. It's already government controlled. 50% you already control it. That's how they take over the industry. They just print the money. And they come and they say, we're the government, we're here to help, we're just accelerating, facilitating, blah, blah, blah. That's what happens. Or, or they wear a disguise, because clearly mm -hmm. uh, there, there have been uh, attempts to make this, um, this relationship somewhat invisible, mm -hmm. to make the hierarchy as invisible as possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as you said, you, we have a situation where we have different departments in government uh, keeping secrets from one another. Mm -hmm. So there, there is, there's just this sort of large arena, this playing field in which you, you have, you know, inside of it, adversarial relationships yes. uh, in, in what, you know, in order for it to function well, what we should expect to be a cooperative environment, right? Yeah. So we mm -hmm. don't even know, like, if there's levels of warfare going on within that environment. Oh, absolutely. They, they hate each other more than they hate us. That's, that's the good news. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that, you know, it's a different way than I usually put it. But uh, I like there's literally a conversation among some people over whether or not the solution to all of this is like violent rebellion. Right. <laughs> I don't don't believe in that. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't either. Um, I, I believe that it's neither it's neither possible mm -hmm. uh, or or good strategy. Neither one. Right? Um, it, and, um, and, and that's even before we ask the moral question or mm -hmm. ask ourselves what we could sleep with at night, right? Um, I, I, I keep telling people, um, you know, the way out of this is simply uh, they're going to eat themselves um, mm -hmm. and they're going to collapse. And in fact, we're, we're already seeing some of that. And, and uh, I don't know if, if this is something that you've read or, or uh, is part of your experience. I found an article uh, last year, I think, where it showed return on investment from R&D in the pharmaceutical industry, which you pointed out is $100 billion a year. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the U.S. is where the vast majority of world R&D gets, gets spent. Um, so you have that investment and, and you can calculate return on investment mm -hmm. uh, according to products being brought to market. And it was projected a few years ago that that would hit zero in 2020. It, yes, it was going that way uh, for quite some time. It was declining because of the regulations that everybody had to apply with. And, um, you know, so like as, as a private manufacturer, you have to 
you have to conform to all these regulations, including good manufacturing practices, all the clinical trial testing, preclinical testing. Um, so yeah, the return on investment was was going down over time. Uh, and now we have these wonderful things happen, you know, like they all, oh, you know, mRNA revolution. Why did it happen? Because they break the law. That's that's the only reason. They, they, they have free money. They can print it anytime, spend as much as they want. Uh, capture any any technology that they need this way, and uh, they don't have to uh, they don't, don't have to follow the law. So of course, that's an overnight success, and a, a billionaire was made every like thirty minutes or so uh, while while this was going on, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how you do it. But they destroyed the industry already. Already, they they've destroyed it. Like from my professional opinion, there's really nothing left. So what's going to save medicine? Let's suppose that we get past this challenge, which mm -hmm. I, I do believe that we will. Uh, it, you know, it's 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 interesting. I, I've I've constantly been sort of warned against black pilling people. Uh, whereas what I think is actually the case is the world was getting darker while people were being you know um, met with a fire hose of information that was sort of a, a constant PR campaign that people didn't know was being waged. You know, the information war has been going on long before the, you know, uh, inject yourself with this thing that we're not telling you what's in it uh, <laughs> uh, campaign began. Um, uh, but what, it, it, at some point, you know, humanity, I, I think that we will we will reach out of this dark age. Right. I, I don't think it really I don't think it's a black pill. I think it's a, it's a very white pill, which is it can be so much better than this. And yeah, I believe that. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know what, what does the world look like? If you don't have DOD control over this, are we testing, you know, herbal medicines? Are we all participating in decentralized big data where each of us who happens to be drinking a certain tea, um, you know, uh, puts that information on the blockchain and then we we know the relationship or at least a correlation between the number of people, um, you know, trying some potential product and people who are getting sick right and and we can uh, and perhaps you know run queries on the blockchain and filter that data you know what what comes next you know how does the world uh, evolve past this and you know somebody like you you know what what does your job look like in a world like that uh well so the, how the world is I, I i think it's largely actually good news because there's so much information and things that i was not aware either myself about you know vaccines in general is becoming uh, widely available and uh, more and more people learn the truth, which was, you know, was manipulated, hidden from us. We we were consuming propaganda, myself including, uh, you know, so we were wrong and we found out, we found out the hard way, but it's those, those are probably the best lessons in your life when you, when you have the hard knocks. Um, you find out that you were wrong and you, readjust and you find out the truth and now we have the ability to find the truth and that's that's the most valuable thing that resulted out of all of this and then you can rebuild obviously so uh as far as medicine yes medicine has to collapse um pharma has to collapse well they already collapsed uh the healthcare has to completely i i i would not go to a hospital today like i will do anything to avoid that right exactly I mean, if you if you break a bone you know, or you're in a car accident, the, the ER, you, you have to have access to that. Yes. Otherwise, uh, otherwise. Uh, and I actually, gosh, uh, I, I found this out working as an actuary in college. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for two years, that was how I, I paid for life in college was I worked for this tiny little insurance company um, that was a 20 minute drive from from Washington University in St. Louis. So uh, I, I, I went through some data that uh, it, I, I was you know, casualty actuary. I wasn't doing health you know, data or anything like that, but we would get these journals, these magazines. And, and I, I really only had about two hours of work a day that I had to accomplish. And, and a lot of the rest of my day was reading. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd pick up these journals and I'd thumb through them. And there was data about like, you know, sort of risk benefit analysis of visitations to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And I I started taking the data and putting it in spreadsheets. And I was like, I bet 90 percent of all trips to the doctor or the hospital have negative life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And and it it turned out to be a little bit higher than that. I think it was like 91 point something percent. And that Mm -hmm. was just based on data that I could pull out of this one journal. Right. It wasn't a sophisticated analysis, but I, I felt like I was pretty much hitting the nail on the head, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. no, that's true. I, I worked in the cardiovascular safety space, remember? And I worked with uh, some world premier cardiovascular researchers and, and cardiologists, and they, they all told me, and this is years ago, and they all told me, they said, oh, yeah, when we have these major uh, conferences for, car- for cardiologists and everybody goes to some location, right? Uh, then all of a sudden in the whole country, the cardiovascular deaths go down because these all, all of these guys went somewhere. They're not doing their work. <laughs> so. There's part of me that wonders if um, the next generation coming along, if they will all sort of retool themselves so that one of their skills is managing blockchain. Mm-hmm. So that what we have is all of these blockchains um, that are, you know, maybe maybe sort of side chains to Bitcoin, you know, connected to the primary trunk of the the monetary tree, uh, but on which all of this data uh, is is you know processing like a giant computer, uh, but is distributed, not a computer run by any one person mm-hmm. um, uh, to anyone's will, but uh, something you know a- along which you can have I don't know a micropayment system for people processing their data, but it's their data cryptographically protected so that they have the key. And that data is, it's not even out there. It's just, um, uh, it, it is it is only, you know, trackable to you by your permission. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that a lot of jobs that we think of as being sort of facade jobs mm-hmm. in this, uh, you know, pharmaceutical medical complex, um, become not quite personalized, but sort of community blockchain uh, things where somebody like you who has a great deal of expertise with medical products is, you know, maybe even spending a lot of your time just organizing the way people have information so that instead of going to a doctor or a hospital, what they're actually doing is consulting with someone who Mm -hmm. knows how to query that blockchain to just share the information that they need. Mm-hmm. And that, that that might prevent a lot of unnecessary hospital visits, visits like a new professional class yeah. that is an information class as opposed to a an appointment treatment class. Yeah, the 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 whole central central command and control system, which they're trying, well, they built for a long time because we didn't have access to each other so easily and access to each other's expertise so easily. So they, they hijacked the expertise and they built a central command and control. And now they're trying to make it global, even more centralized, even more control, even more oppression. 
even more, you know, so going to ridiculous lengths to start demonizing doctors' um, opinion about your health and, you know, policing their speech and prosecuting them. So all of that, you know, needs to collapse. And and I, I absolutely agree. And I think we kind of ran sort of a pilot experience here in the past two to three years where, <laughs> where, where people like myself, I, I you know, I'm not an, an appointed you know, CDC, yet myself and a bunch of my colleagues had to go into the various data and try to uncover the truth. And we did, uh, even with their hugely manipulated data set, right? Uh, I'm not FDA, but like I can go and read their documents and explain to people, you know, what they say. Um, Catherine Watt, she's not a lawyer, she's a paralegal and a researcher, but she put together this incredible resource for any lawyer who wants to prosecute any, any prosecutor or a lawyer who wants to file a, a lawsuit, they they can go and have already made documents and already made you know legal briefs that they can use. Um, and so like there are examples like that, and and this should be um, it should be distributed. It should be open. Uh, it should be, you know, if you're looking for a certain question, you can go to me. If you don't like my opinion, you can go to somebody else and. It should be a free market of ideas, information, and exchange like that. And it should be also policed by everyone. We, we can't have this delegated authority to, oh, you know, the law enforcement agency like FDA needs to, it, they're doing their job. They're, they're enforcing the GMP rules on the farm. And well, it turns out they don't. <laughs> and, and we have no way to make them now. <laughs> so this needs to be very distributed, very distributed. Are, are there any critical points of failure in a transition between a highly centralized command and control medical economy and uh, and the one that is that is distributed? And I'll throw one out as an example. Um, I worry a little bit about how much we have sh we have uh, offshored manufacturing of uh, you know basic antibiotics. Right. Mm -hmm. I've actually talked to my wife. I've like, you know what? Um, could you? Could you put together a lab that produces antibiotics if mm -hmm. if the supply chains begin to break down and that that becomes mm -hmm. a you know a local economic necessity? Um, what other than antibiotics? What are the things that we really really absolutely need in order to maintain this um, you know uh, highly sanitary society? You know we we've had problems and we've had successes in building society, right? Um, we we've had success in building a highly sanitary society. Mm -hmm. Right. Other than antibiotics, what's critical? But in the in the medicine, you mean, or, or healthcare? Well, antibiotics, yes. Uh, the antibiotics, pain meds, um, uh, anesthesiology. Um, you know, those are very critical. Uh, and then supplies for various, um, you know, surgery or just just material supplies uh, to the extent that they can be made here. You know, there are very very useful drugs like hydro hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Yeah, we should have access to them. Um, a lot of generic drugs are very, very useful. And a lot of generics have been outsourced and they're not produced well at all. They, you know, we, we know for sure that plants in India and China are just horrible. And, you know, they're claiming they're making this product, but it's not to the quality. So that needs to be rebuilt. That needs to be restored. I think there needs to be a lot of, a lot more onshore manufacturing of those things. And, controlled and we have extensive set of rules and laws to do it it's not you know so it can be implemented um so that that's necessary for 
resilient society. Now, this whole government claims that government needs to protect you from these super bugs that somebody can make in the lab. Well, that's BS. That's how they established the central command and control system in the first place, because they, they drive this fear. And there's been a lot of propaganda about scary viruses. If you think back, you know, a few years, that's another part of the preparation and premeditation for this whole thing was that they were driving all these Netflix shows, movies about virus pandemics, uh, the History Channel shows, children's games, all sorts of things were put together to drive this notion that there is this scary virus that can naturally evolve to be both deadly and highly spreading, which is nonsense and doesn't happen like this in nature, and wipe out the whole world. Or somebody can make it in the lab, also nonsense, they can't. Uh, and uh, but but the government wants you to think that because guess what? Once you're afraid of this, you feel helpless. Here's the government that's going to help you because we're going to put together all these recommendations, plans, tra trace and track apps. We'll microchip everyone, and you know that's that's where it's all coming from, and that's how you establish central command and control. Is to make people feel helpless mm -hmm. and fatigued in the process of trying to sort it all out. I actually think this is what uh, the artificial, I, I think artificial intelligence is sort of part of a, a large scale PSYOP right now. Mm -hmm. There are even people um, seeding the conversations in the medical freedom movement with, doesn't it feel like there is an artificial intelligence making all the decisions playing against us, right? And I like, I, I, I know, you know, artificial intelligence engineers, um, both who are former students of mine, I used to teach um, like you know, high level, math students who were competing at like international math Olympiad and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, you know, I've got, uh, you know, two decades of students who have gone to Google or Facebook or, you know, these companies or, or, or to, you know, uh, government, you know, um, court, you know, corporations, I, I don't even know what to call it. Um, NSA and places like that. Um, you know, when I have conversations about artificial intelligence with them, some of them talk pretty plainly about where we are. And a lot of that is, you know, it, it it's still, it's it's machine learning. Uh, we've improved some of the math. We've improved some of the algorithms. But I described what I did 20 years ago, right before I left Wall Street. And, you know, it doesn't sound like they've advanced much more than that, no. which, which would sound surprising to a lot of people. It's like, well, surely this is advancing, but there may be limitations, just like there are limitations to, you know, computers, chips, and Moore's Law. There are often simply limitations to technologies and mathematics that are just sort of hard caps as to where you can go. Mm -hmm. And but so I, I hear these stories, but then like maybe a third of the people that I talk to, they have their own mantras, right? They're like, yeah, we're this close to mapping the human utility function. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you joking? Like this, this is, you know, and I want people to be aware, you know, and maybe somebody has a different opinion. I'm willing to hear it, but I've had this conversation, you know, dozens of times or hundreds of times over the past few years. And, and it just feels like nonsense. If people think that it's hard to have, you know, human beings participate in a conspiracy, you know, um, I mean, human beings participate in conspiracies all the time, especially at the level of, you know, the DOD or something like that, you know, just the, the fact of classified information is conspiracy in a sense, right? It, it's mm -hmm. a it's a closed pool of information. But you know, don't don't buy into this this narrative of the technology has reached this point where you know we're we're in a constant state of doom without our you know technophile leadership, technocratic leadership to to save us from it constantly. Mm -hmm. 
and therefore you should, you know, hand them a pile of money. So anyway, uh, that's my soapbox for the day, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and this whole AI, I totally agree. There's, there's no AI. I mean, it's, it's, it's artificial kind of chatbot. Like, Oh, have you seen this recent chatbot that they put out? My husband is playing with it. I, um, I, I've seen people talk with, uh, talk about it, but I haven't. Uh, yeah, it's already, it's already been censored. So it's just like, just like Google at the beginning was really good search engine. And then they censored the hell out of it. Out of it. Like three days ago, it would give you a correct answer about transgender and about vaccines. It has been changed like two days ago to 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 give you a propaganda line. <laughs> so. uh, 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 that doesn't shock me at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Sasha, um, any, anything else that you want to, um, any summary or, uh, or additional information that seems critical to the conversation before we move toward wrapping things up? Uh, well, I think it's pretty extensive. I invite people to um, watch my videos. I have an extensive collection of videos on uh, BitChute, uh, Team Enigma, and I'm also writing more of... Um, uh, written form articles on Substack now. I just started, but you know, I've been kind of converting. Oh, yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll share your uh, Substack for yeah. the audience. Um, I had I had it up so that I could say what, what's the the name? Uh, it's due diligence and art, and uh, it's just social tip of a Substack.com. Um, yeah, I'll show this real quick. Here we go. Yeah, this one. So I just published this article. I invite everyone to read because this Moderna package um, has just become available yesterday by Judicial Watch. And it shows that Moderna vaccine causes uh, malformation of the babies um, and uh, adverse events in pregnancy. And I have a lot of other extensive. I wrote it more in it's, it's more dry than my other articles, but this is more to be used as an as an affidavit or for legal proceedings. So um, yeah, that, that's that's the recent article, and then um, you know so, some the the one that with the org chart that's about the intent to harm that's explaining the Department of Defense participation in this. Um, okay, but uh, so before I let you go, you're gonna have to tell me about this painting. <laughs> well, it's it's this one behind you, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the, yeah, this is one of my paintings. I, I share my art on oh, this. This is well. yours. Yeah, that's my. Painting. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that it's uh, you know I didn't I didn't want to yeah, pharma my pharma stuff doesn't really have anything to do with my art but uh, and but people were wanted to see it and um, they asked me to put art in there as well so I said okay fine these are unrelated things but I mean, sometimes they're related so the, this painting is is Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, uh, the, this was done in 2021. Uh, um, and, you know, you, you know the, the, the biblical story, right? Of course, yeah. And this, this just describes the, the power of not being afraid, which I think this is the power that we have. The power of the government is when they make us afraid. Uh, and that's how they establish totalitarian control, by, by making people afraid. Um, and, yeah. and this this is a, a a lot of people are pointing this out lately, mm -hmm. um, and and you know so I, I'm glad and I'm glad to hear it every single time. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, this is something you've been thinking about for uh, for even longer. This is the painting right behind you, and uh, I I didn't know you were going to say this is yours, but I'm looking at this, and I mean, wow, uh, you're you're very talented. 
Uh, yeah, you're a very talented artist in addition to your your professional career. I love this. Yeah, so I so I I do share my paintings there. I like I I I loved art all the time. I frankly didn't study that that much. I only after I retired from industry, I went to study more formally in Italy, but only for a few months. And um, you know, because I couldn't do it any anymore. Um, uh, but yeah, I love to do it. I unfortunately in the last two years I didn't have much time to practice it, but I try to even in a small way. Um, this these types of compositions, it's very large. Um, it takes a long time to plan and, and implement. Uh, you know, so I work on smaller pieces now, but it's still it's it's very very important to me. And this particular painting is very important to me because and it should be people should try to think deeply about this because the the power of of faith and not being afraid uh, is what makes him what what makes all of them him and the lions extremely calm and balanced and happy together. Uh, that that's that's what makes us all balanced and happy together in nature, including viruses or bacteria, whatever your view on that. But that that's that's what you should do. You should not be afraid. And if, if government comes with these BS ideas, know that most of the time, 99% of the time, they're bluffing. Okay, so just don't fall for this. Well, I, I love that we're ending on that note. Um, uh, I, I, I like this one so well, well, maybe, maybe we'll talk about this again uh, more <laughs> offline, but uh, like, I, I, I'm going to keep my own copy of this one. Like this, you know, this, this is, this is one of my favorite images from all of the pandemic now. Uh, thank mm -hmm. you so much for joining, uh, joining us and, and sharing, you know, what you've learned about, you know, both the pandemic and, and your, your background and where that comes from. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and, you know, for, uh, uh, Anybody out there, I haven't been paying attention to the comments and I, for about the past uh, 20 minutes. I apologize for that, but we're going to go ahead and, and wrap things up here. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Sasha.